This episode is sponsored by a donor to Global Wellness Institute, or GWI. GWI is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to empower wellness worldwide by educating the public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness. GWI's research, programs, and initiatives have been instrumental in the growth of the $4.5 trillion U.S. dollar wellness economy and in uniting the health and wellness industries. Visit globalwellnessinstitute.org. On this episode, we have Sohee Jun. Sohee was born in South Korea and migrated to the U.S. at the age of six with her family. She had a strong passion for reading and a proclivity towards the sciences, opting to study psychology during her undergrad years. After rejecting a career path in medicine, she opted to earn a doctorate focusing on industrial organizational psychology, an arena for which she had developed a strong passion. She began working at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena and also held posts in finance and media, including with Warner Brothers. When she made her personal decision to start her own family, the experience of other women making a similar decision came into sharp focus. Her observations and personal experience became the basis for a book she recently published called Mommy Tract. She also launched her own business and now coaches executives looking to find an integrated balance in their work and life settings. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. This is really great. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Um, the shifts you've made in your career and this amazing book that you've written um, certainly um, uh, are manifest, are represent the ideals of this podcast and show, which is about um, um, mining the nonlinear path. Yeah. And so we, we love to have people on who will share about their life journeys and um, the decisions they've made and uh, most importantly, the why behind them. And so uh, this is a real treat, and I think you're going to inspire many people in our audience. So very excited oh, to have you here. That is my hope. I hope it's <laughs> at least at least one person. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's me. So I guess we're done. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Yeah. We're going to broadcast this widely, um, impact as many people as possible. Um, I'd love to go back to the beginning. Um, I know that uh, your family hails from uh, South Korea, and uh, is that where you were born? Yes, that is where I was born, in the most southern tip of South Korea, which is by the ocean. Yeah, yeah. It's closer to Busan? Yeah, that's, that's exactly where it was. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. yeah, so I, but I don't remember much of it because I came to the States when I was six years old. Right. So the only thing I really remember was the uh, kindergarten and the uniforms and all right. the kind of rituals around that. Right. Well, it wasn't a bad time to come because you got ensconced in the language a bit, which is um, nice. You had some basis in it. So I imagine you're fluent in Korean. Yeah, you know, it's actually funny. That's kind of what I remember as being one of the most challenging things coming mm. to the United States um, and getting assimilated and the challenges with that, even at such a young age. I remember being teased about, oh, you don't know English, you know, all of that stuff, which, you know, has made me more resilient as a person. But even at the age of six, it was a little bit difficult to learn the language because I knew nothing, no English yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was an interesting process in and of itself. But language acquisition does happen at six, seven, and eight is what yeah. the research shows. So Absolutely. not, you know, it didn't take me long to learn it. Exactly. It's so interesting, the different perspectives. So um, I was actually born in Germany to parents of Indian origin. Mm. 
and we migrated here uh, when I was about three or four. So I was so young, my first words were German, but um, uh, I, I ended up learning German because I just felt like that was a part of just who I am. But I speak oh, wow. it with an American accent. Oh, that's so interesting. And I would say the same for my Korean. Oh, you take me to okay. the restaurant and it comes out, but it's, there's a little bit of an accent there. Okay. All right. Well, I feel better now. <laughs> <laughs> All this time, I was like, why didn't you stay? <laughs> no, I hear you all that. <laughs> um, I know that your parents are no longer with you and um, sorry for your loss. Um, oh. You have uh, an older sister. I do. And um, how has the relationship with her been? Are you close? So, you know, it's, I, I wonder what other sibling journeys are like. Because I want to say, is it typical that we fought as teens and like were like cats and dogs and get out of my closet? No, you get out of mine. And you, oh, yeah, we had lots of arguments. But as we separated and went to different colleges, we got much closer. And I think that that was an effort, you know, kind of what the family instilled in us in terms of siblings and, and you know, keeping in touch and making sure that you stay in touch and support each other in that way. So yeah, once I left college, I would say we got way closer. <laughs> <laughs> and she is older than me by three and a half years. And she resides in San Diego, which is, you know, where I grew up in my junior, junior year of high school junior high, high school years. Okay. And so she has stayed there and uh, I've just kind of moved about, but yeah, yeah, we're very close today. Gotcha. Well, that's nice to hear. It's a good, uh, good outcome. Um, uh, in your book, which we are going to talk a lot more about, um, <laughs> you discuss um, how growing up, oftentimes you felt a bit lonely. It was you and your sister, your parents were working multiple jobs to be able to provide. Um, what were some of the things you did for for fun for you? What uh, were you an avid reader? Oh, uh, share with us. Oh my goodness, the scene. I my mom used to always say when there was quiet in the house, you can find me in a corner somewhere with a book. And I remember like that was you know talk about like assimilating. When I came to the U.S., I quickly found once I learned the language like the library and all of these books. <laughs> That's great. And it was just like a, a safe place for me to be and just kind of get lost in other things and adventures and worlds. And funny enough, my oldest son, who is um, 10, about to be 11, he has the same voracious love of reading. So just came naturally to him. Like we love books and yeah, reading was definitely an escape for me. As well as back then, I think that, you know, parenting today and having kids today is a little bit different as it was back when I was growing up. And I'm sure you can relate to this. We just went outside. Like it, yeah. you know, if our parents were working, I don't think the neighborhood was our playground. <laughs> and my sister and I just went outside and we found the neighborhood kids. We would ride our bikes or we would get, you know, into some kind of like childhood trouble. I'm saying air quotes, but like running around the neighborhood with our bikes until, I mean, we kind of fantasize and, um, say it like oh back then but it really was that it was like we ran around until dark and then we knew how to get back home um, turn the tv on if our parents were there great if not the tv was on you know? <laughs> right. so, <laughs> and I watched a lot more you know adult content than my kids do now <laughs> <laughs> oh that's for sure 
part of it is we could sneak around. They didn't really know. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so fascinating. Well, a very similar upbringing in that way. Um, uh, but it's so fascinating, and I love how you've highlighted that contrast about parenting today in terms of the fear we would have about allowing our children to do that. But then also, there's a standard now of what do you mean you're not engaging your children? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I really like how you put that. There is that kind of tension there of because we're all, quote unquote, all doing it. We kind of check each other on that. I think consciously and unconsciously. Oh, are you taking your kid to the you know soccer game, or who's doing that? And are you you know checking the hours that you're with your kids? But back then, like I think our parents were just too busy. Exactly. You know, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm sure yours were yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely. There was no. Uh, I couldn't imagine them scheduling in time in their calendars for us. I mean, sure, they was taking to the soccer game or the baseball game um but that was about it and it was almost sometimes a drop off and then a pick up later and that was perfectly great like at least we got to go yeah. <laughs> something you know there's always pros and cons to things and i think that the pro to that is that it allows you to develop your resiliency and resourcefulness and i mean to this day i say i'm like the most resourceful person because i have to figure it out yeah. um, as you probably did as well and there is that part i think that is lost on the generation of kids today but they develop it in other ways of course it's just I think they do. um you know we were left to our devices and we you know we figured it out and so yeah i mean they probably showed up to one birthday party and they were busy working and doing their things and now it is just different it is parenting is literally like a job yeah it's <laughs> true it's yeah. so true you're absolutely right with that yeah so um you were a very studious um uh, high schooler and um of course whenever that happens then um the whispering starts and then it becomes sort of a bit more adamant that whispering and then the suggestion then it's pretty much a command that you will study medicine because you're good at that <laughs> and uh, I, I said it that way intentionally because i lived that i know it's going to become it's a complete surprise to you that my parents wanted me to become a physician um and that uh hear that it's so much in common <laughs> yeah it's crazy um and i but i had the same revelation you did like you know i don't like this all that much and I, for me it was like passing exams is one thing but when my friends were telling me that they were volunteering in hospitals and i should do the same thing i'm like why <laughs> there's nothing about that that feels appealing and i'm like maybe this really isn't in me and that was my um, uh, sort of uh, epiphany that, yeah, this isn't going to work for me. <laughs> you know what I love that you, is that you had that epiphany. I think a lot of the um, immigrant kids who are maybe, I, I'm not first generation, because I think first generation is considered when you're born in the States. Right. That's right. <clears throat> so, you know, to have the courage to even question that is, no, great, right? Well, it was, um, and I, I love how you point this out in your book, kind of the the damning effect of success and how it kind of reinforces a negative thing and pushes you one direction. So I got a uh, uh, an Imperial Cancer Research Fund fellowship to go to Oxford. So I'm at Green College, Oxford, doing this research, wow. and I'm hating every moment of it. 
And so I came back and I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. And it created this rift with my parents um, that I don't think we ever really quite recovered from. Uh, but my mom, to her credit, was a bit more uh, thoughtful and we did reconcile before she, she passed, of course. Oh, I'm really glad to hear that. And I can imagine the rift and the kind of tsunami that occurred in your house of chaos. And like, what are you talking about a senior? Probably, you know, got all of the, why are you doing this talk? Well, my hypothesis on this is that, um, look, it's never, it's always the middle class that leaves their home country. Um, it's not really an option for the lower economic classes and the wealthy have no reason to leave. Like the the Hyundai family of the world, right? They're, they're very comfortable. Why would they leave? And so the purpose of leaving is so that, you know, the middle class doesn't fall lower down that socioeconomic ladder. So you come with this mantra of um, security. Um, and so you seek security. I mean, this is why your parents worked three to four jobs and, and were never around. And so medicine and law to a certain degree are perceived as very safe careers and that's why i think there's such a fascination with it people always get sick there's always going to be a need for physician services um and and so yeah i think that's a big big part of that yeah uh and i like the way that you put that because those are kind of perceived traditional success paths um but yeah i think that that's that's right um, because you don't leave a country for what worse. So what is that next yeah. thing? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, you uh, had the courage as well to tell your parents that um, this isn't going to happen for me. And um, you were able to be your authentic self, which I congratulate that. I know that one must not have been easy. Yeah, thank you. It's one of those moments similar to yours of, of when you start with an open mindset and go, why? this doesn't resonate with me and why is that? So then if it doesn't, what would that thing be that kind of just lights you up? And for me, that was, you know, even though I was pursuing a medical degree, I was uh, majoring in psychology. And so I just took that a little bit more seriously to say, okay, well, this, this is actually really fascinating. Yeah, so really looking at psychology seriously and thinking what are the paths available for me because I really love this topic. And at the time, it was the burgeoning of clinical psychology. And I really looked at clinical psychology and said, okay, well, can I, what about is fascinating? Could I make a lifetime of it? And I actually said, no, I'm not interested in working with thought or like um, that type of population. And so in my senior year of, of college, I took a class, which was at the time called Industrial Organizational Psychology. And I literally, I seemed like I took the class and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, you ever <laughs> oh, yeah. this is it's electric. Yeah. Yes. You're like, oh my God, this is everything I wanted to do. Exactly. So I was just like so fired up and I talked to the professor and asked him to tell me more. What can I do with this? And so it really started that path of, okay, here are the ways that you can take this and what you can do as a organizational psychologist. And at that time, it was just becoming a, a field. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that's really fantastic. It's kind of interesting then to see this like sub-discipline kind of uh, bloom uh, and, and you got a chance to witness that. Um, choice of studying in Arizona, was that to be somewhat close to home? Yes, yeah, so I'll be completely transparent. It was uh, far enough away, close enough, but also <laughs> the only school I got into. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, 
hindsight is always, you know, 2020, these, these admissions officers and their myopia. <laughs> A lot of these other schools would have been uh, thrilled to have you attend. Um, was it in that class or, you know, conversations with that professor and as you're deciding, I'm going to move towards this profession, did you decide grad school right away was going to be the best thing for you? Yeah, so one of the things that um, they shared with me is that in order to really get serious about this career, you have to have some sort of graduate degree, whether it's a master's or a PhD. And so that for me was like perfectly fine because I didn't, I wasn't ready to like go into the workforce right after my bachelor's. So I, like many people are like, okay, if I can just, you know. <laughs> prolong this just a bit longer. Yeah, prolong it a little bit longer. There's I'm always like, time to play taxes. I'll wait. <laughs> 100%. So I was fine with getting a graduate degree, but like any good, you know, uh, studious girl um, person, I went all the way. So it wasn't just. You weren't going to stop at the master's. I just had that sense. I'm like, no, it was doctorate all the way. <laughs> right, right. I had to go for the doctorate because of my upbringing combined with my ambition, combined with just who I am and wanting to go full throttle and something that I love. Yeah. So yeah, that's what made me choose that path. That's really great. So um, talk to us about um, graduating with your doctorate and um, uh, your first job after that. Oh, gosh. What I loved about my graduate school experience is that it's a combination of lots of theory, but really practitioner based. And so mm -hmm. they encourage you very quickly to get volunteer, get into opportunities to volunteer um, on projects. And so that started in my first year. So it was, you know, kind of like this on the fly. I'm trying to get acclimated to grad school, what that's like, trying to form new friendships and you know, live that grad school life while also taking on these projects to get real-time experience with what you're learning. So there was a lot going on there. And I think that that really helped me get even more resilient and confident as a person and find my voice and really fine tune what I wanted and liked about this field. Um, and then two to three years in um, after I passed my master's and once you start your dissertation work then you have a lot more time mm. to to work so that's when I was really looking for kind of a, a near full-time job so that I can you know write my dissertation around that and do the, gotcha. the things I need to do so my first job was at you know lucky enough for me a, a world-renowned institution called Jet Propulsion Laboratory right, nice. um, yeah and Congrats. thank you yeah and it was one of those things where back in those times you actually had a paper that you looked at for like job opening. right yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> what's that like yeah there was no passport indeed um, <laughs> so i was looking through the paper and i saw that jpl was having a career fair so I was like, let me go and see, you know, what I can do to get an interview or something. So I took my resume, printed it out, put on my finest, you know, suit that I, that I could find. I went and landed an interview for a kind of internship rotation in their human resources department. Nice. So, you know, lucky enough to have landed that role and parlayed that into the three and a half year stint at JPL in which I got exposure to human resources and specifically in training and development, which was the field that I was going in. So, you know, when people tell me 
it's not rocket science. Well, you know what? I worked with rocket scientists. <laughs> I was just going to say, I was really just going to say it's such a unique population to deal with, predominantly male, very tech oriented, obviously. And, um, you know, they oftentimes there's, uh, you know, when the, the book intelligence uh, excels, sometimes the emotional intelligence lags, or maybe let's just say that not a lot of time is put towards that. It's not already. Very nicely. <laughs> <laughs> Try to be a diplomat. Uh, we don't want to alienate anybody. <laughs> yeah, and I um, think that's probably, there's some truth to that. Um, and what I learned during my time there that has carried over to many, uh, to all of my jobs and who I am is how to have gravitas. Mm -hmm. You know, imagine being a 20, I think I want to say I was 22, 23 years old, and I was, you know, rolling out my first leadership development training. And I'm in this room, and I remember this so vividly. You know, I'm doing a training on the American Disabilities Act because there had been some changes, and I had to make sure all of the managers knew and were up to speed on that. So I'm in this room full of, and I'm not, you know, I'm the paint, I'm painting the picture, but there really it was a room full of 50 and above year old white males, right. and I'm a 23 year old. Asian female telling them how to lead and what to do according to this act and what being a leader looks like, right? So yes, I knew my stuff and I had to be very buttoned up, but I also had to be able to have the gravitas to say, you know, these to stand up to some of the questions and some of the unconscious things that were coming out in the room. So it was very uh, a pivotal moment for me. Yeah. That's great. I mean, it's a bit of trial by fire, but um, yeah, you got it and uh, nailed it. And it's interesting how that's carried over into other aspects of your career. Yeah. And what's, what's really, um, what confirmed or what became clear to me is that we're all human. And if you're able to have um, a level of authenticity and uh, be you in a way that kind of matches the room, if, if that makes sense, yeah. um, then people will find you credible and kind of uh, resonate with you a little bit better. So I think that that's the core thing is how to be authentic to you, right? That's similar to what I write in my book. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, so uh, you're in the HR department uh, at, at this organization um, and you probably finish your doctorate, your thesis and do your thesis mm -hmm. defense while you're there. Mm -hmm. I did, yes. yeah. yeah. Congrats, of course, on all that. Um, why did you opt not to go into teaching? I always knew, even entering into it in the beginning phases, that I wanted to practice and be a person mm -hmm. doing the work out in the field. I, not to say that I didn't want to teach, because guess what? I do that now, and I'm... <laughs> ah, excellent yeah. point, yes. Yeah. Back at my grad school, and um, this semester I'm teaching group dynamics and team interventions, and I'm looking. Oh, okay. I, I didn't realize that classroom setting. I was thinking more about your consulting practice, your coaching practice, which of course is the passing on of wisdom and knowledge. Yeah. But so you're actually teaching a class. That's great. Congrats. Yeah. yeah. I always had it in the back of my mind that I would love to give back to the community and to this field. Uh, so I've kind of put it off because they've asked me to come back many times, but I found this past year, I'm able to do that in a virtual way to give back to the grad students. Um, but yeah, and you know, having my own firm and that's been a journey in and of itself, but I spent a bulk of my career building experiences and be very, what I call intentional about that in, in my corporate life. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so tell us about the, the role you undertook after JPL. After JPL, I went to a firm called Washington Mutual. So now they are known as Chase. Um, and at the time, they were really big in the California, kind of Seattle, uh, the, the Western region, the Northwest, Southwest. And they had a role that was all about working with clients on organization development stuff and really doing employee engagement work as well as leadership engagement um, and rolling out this just-in-time employee engagement tool. So my task was to work with three key client groups, um, human resources, as well as community services and the insurance services group. And I was responsible for rolling out this employee engagement survey, training the leaders um, and really helping them develop action plans around it and um, doing a lot of traveling for that as well. So that was a great experience um, for me in terms of knowing that one, I didn't want to fly all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. These are the lifestyle things that you learn along the way too. I'm like, mm, do, can I be a road warrior like that? Not for me. So really, that's so interesting. Um, I wouldn't have thought that, given the resilience and the figuring it out that you had to do growing up. Um, what was uh, so distasteful about traveling, or what is? Yeah. So you know, <laughs> because the other path to you know internal consulting and doing that for companies is doing that for a firm, right? Like you can yeah. go to the Deloitte's and IBM's and the McKinsey's of the world and consult and you're on the road a lot. And when I was doing that for uh, the company that I was with, I didn't like that I literally had to like put stuff into my suitcase and get on the plane and then come back and just have a really short weekend and then get back on the road again mm. to do the trainings in another city that's random that you have no affiliation with outside of the company. So it, it felt kind of um, cold in a way. And just, sure, you like to have a sense of grounding. Yeah, yeah, I really, I really do. Um, yeah. and I, I mean, think, what I'm hearing is it would have been different if you're going to the same place all the time, then you would have developed a kind of relationship with that location or that city or with the people there or, or other spots there, but there was no opportunity for that. It was always yeah. someplace new. Yeah, and the personality and what resonates and what I value is community. So I really love, and um, I put a lot of time into relationships and people and spending time with them. So that's something that is a value to me that really hasn't changed much. And when you're traveling a lot, that's hard to do. It is. No, it's very hard to do. And um, people tend to find the other tribe members that uh, are more present for them. It's human nature. Yeah. It's not any kind of exclusion. So, um, so yeah, I can totally get with that. So how long did you, where you at though? I, we called it WAMU back in the day, I think. Yes, WAMU, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, they had the funniest commercials. Um, not long, not long because... I was living in Pasadena at the time and commuting to Irvine every day. In addition to Oh that. my goodness. Yeah. So you know, and I mean for the audience members listening who don't know the geography, like it's like Pasadena is like very northern edge of uh, the, the sprawling metropolis that is Los Angeles and Irvine is in Orange County. It's even far from like Santa Monica. <laughs> yeah, it's, so it's two hours one way. Yeah, that's intense. Wow. So I, I, you were in a relationship at the time, and so your partner um, was there. So that needed. Yeah, so I was married at the time, and 
you know, I, but I also lived apart during the week because the whole driving two hours in the morning. And yes. Tiresome. Yeah. So I found a roommate down there and, you know, lived there. And then on top of the airplane travel, that was just a bit much. So that wore me out. And so I was there for a total of uh, nine to 10 months. Okay. Before gotcha. I found my next gig. And the next gig was uh, Warner Brothers? No. So the next gig was another financial services company All right. countrywide, which is known... <laughs> Uh, famous for other reasons <laughs> <laughs> that's a well every finance firm i worked for also got acquired uh yeah so now be a babe i was with the home loans division working on building their culture um, actively building their culture through rewards and recognition and their communication so i was there for close to four years in which you know i went there as a manager and I was quickly promoted three times to run the team and take on um, communication. And uh, that was a pivotal time in my growth as an employee because I became a leader at a really young age of a team. And boy, did I mess up the same like I was. <laughs> I think you're being hyper self-critical here. Um... You were self-aware and that made a difference because you could pivot and change. Yeah. No negativity bias. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you. <laughs> I like how you put a spin on that. I think really what it was, um, and a lot of leaders do this, is they mimic what they have seen. Yeah, and at the time, I didn't have fantastic leadership role models. There were obviously good people there, but... I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I made a lot of micromanaging, you know, missteps and probably didn't pivot to the individuals on the team as I should have. But again, that was my learning opportunity. And, you know, I did, I learned a lot about how to lead. That's so great. Uh, it sounds like you, you learned exceptionally well. Um, you know, it's interesting that mimicking aspect and how often that comes up in parenting. Mm-hmm. Because unless it's a, a response that we've consciously thought about or approach with intentionality or have specifically learned, we fall back to what we know. And oftentimes it's like what our parents did. Mm-hmm. And so I find myself often catching me, myself and think, well, wait a minute, I don't want to be my dad here ever. But yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a story there too, I think. Oh my God. Yes. That's. Um, that's a podcast series. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so the mimicking aspect, of course, it comes up in leadership. And I think it's a similar um, approach. You have to be conscientious. You have to be intentional. And um, sounds like you really were. So um, kudos on that. That sounds like you got a lot out of that. Yeah, I think I was using or being intentional even before identifying that word being intentional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because similar to you with the parenting thing, oh my goodness, I 180 differently raised my children than how I was raised. And not to say it was all bad for me, but my experience was what it was and I wanted it to be different for my children. Exactly. So was super intentional there and very um, purposeful in how I parented and how I parent today in terms of allowing them to have all of the range of emotions and allowing them to have a voice and allowing them to be who they are and take that into my leadership role. Man, that was kind of um, definitely trial by fire because I wasn't adjusting as quickly, but in hindsight, 
I was just doing the best that I can. I think every leader has that moment where they're just trying to do the best that they can with limited resources. No, absolutely, 100%. Well, you have this funny anecdote in your book about how these female managers would uh, edit your emails. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it was around this time that you had gone through that. Yeah, and I think that a lot of women leaders do that. And by that, I mean micromanage, yes. right? There's a part of us, and I've seen this through a lot of the women that I coach that um, rose up the ranks because they controlled a lot of situations. And so that is just a very small form of control. Right. Well, it's a, the over-preparation. Yeah. Right. Issue. Yeah. yeah. It's the over-preparation issue, which man, did I carry that around wholeheartedly. Like I own that one big time. <laughs> um, because learning to trust yourself is a journey. And it was through all those experiences for me that I learned to trust myself and who I was in that field and as a person and how I showed up to leaders. You know, it takes time and experience. So that's really what it was because I was fully, you know, I have, I say it in the book, I have perfectionism issues, <laughs> challenges, let's say. Right. I recognize that about myself. So knowing that, how can I, you know, walk the line? Yeah, yeah, no, it's fantastic. Okay, so after Countrywide, you headed to? I headed to Jacobs Engineering. So that is an engineering and construction services firm. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, I want to say at the time there was fifty-five thousand employees. Yeah, these entities are so huge um, by the nature of what they're doing, the number of people they need, and then they still do a lot of subcontracting. Yes, it sounds like you're very familiar with that world. Oh, back in banking, we used to cover. Uh, we tried to sell Raytheon's uh, engineering and construction business, and so I had to learn about Bechtel and Floor and all these. All their competitors. And Jacobs, yeah. Yeah, it's a behemoth. And so this role was different. And what attracted me was, so the other underlying theme of my life was just work, life, integration, what I call integration now, but balancing at the time. Um, so Countrywide was like, not two hours away, like Irvine, but an hour away from my home. And Jacob's got me closer by, it was like 20 minutes away. So Okay. It's like this, you know, me trying to find out what works for me and also taking on roles that are different. So Countrywide was out in the business unit, actively working with people, um, doing the work of home loans. And then Jacobs brought me in a um, corporate seat, working with the CEO on succession planning, working with the head of HR, working through business partners, um, human resources partners to get things implemented. Performance management, succession planning, competencies. So it was a different type of work than actively managing culture. Um, and that's what interested me and got me there. So yeah, um, it was an interesting ride. That's so fascinating. The uh, transition planning. It's uh, good that they had the forethought. When I'm in such a large organization, you kind of have to. Um, but very few like do it with such concerted um, efforts. So it's kind of, that's interesting to, to be able to work on that yeah and i think that they were you know ahead of the times in that way so it was exciting to be able to work on that and to just see how what the conversations happen in the room around that yeah yeah absolutely and so um did you leave because the transition happened <laughs> you were like i didn't agree with this this was not my choice i'm out <laughs> so a transition happened in my personal life and that my dad passed away 
NHS, right? And yeah, so it was around this time where, you know, suddenly he was not ill, um, he was in a car accident right. and he passed away. And I want to say I was probably a year into Jacob's and, you know, after his passing, I didn't do, I didn't allow myself the time to grieve in the way that I needed it. And so I ultimately was just so stressed out when I came back to work and Jacob's was very accommodating and would have allowed me to do whatever I needed to grieve, but I powered through and being the, you know, the good worker and feeling like I needed to be there to not let my team down, all of that stuff. I went back pretty quickly and it just showed up in my health and I was just, you know, not feeling well. I was sad all the time, all of those things that ultimately led me to wanting a break from work entirely. So I took what I call a sabbatical of like two years. Wow, good for you. Yeah, and it was the best thing that I could have done at that time. So for me, my mantra is the work will always be there. It's you have to take care of your health and self-care as I talk about in my book too. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Um, and to have the courage to do that. And you also have a brilliant, uh, fantastic discussion in your book around risk and fear mm -hmm. and how to, to frame those in uh, a healthier way. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and it takes a lot of um, experience through experience, right? Like in the beginning of my career, I would not, it's scary. It, no matter what risk you take, it is always a little bit nerve wracking. Even to this day, when I make, you know, big decisions and big jumps or whatever feels risky to me, it's scary. So that's okay. It's how do we work with that? And sure, sure. at that time in my career, I was probably early thirties. It was a big jump yeah. um, because the, the, thought in your mind for any normal human is to say like, well, am I ever going to get a job or, you know, will I ever get another role? And that type of fear looms big and it did, but I also knew that if I didn't take this time, um, it would just take me under from a health perspective. Yeah. Well, it's very astute, very wise to do. And it's so fascinating. You used similar words that I used when I had a kind of pivotal moment in my life and I think I shared about my son's illness mm -hmm. and um, I said the exact same thing um, I can always make money later in life um, I've got one shot to save my son and so basically dropped everything and focused on him it's amazing how lucid those decisions can be mm -hmm. and I joke because um, I deliberate, uh, deliberate prior to that deliberated on everything in my life do I go into finance? Do I go to this university? Do I marry this woman? Everything was like a big pros, cons, positive, you know, every like, but this was just, it was so clear. And it sounds like you had a very similar type of uh, epiphany. Yeah, it, it does become clear. And so that makes it easier in one way. Um, and I think it also takes courage to really listen to that. Um, yeah, very much. So. Because I, I'm sure it was scary for you too, to take Curiously, and maybe this is just uh, foolhardiness that was uh, well deployed, um, or that kind of like uh, adrenaline rush that is the survival mechanism. Yeah. I was really cavalier about it. <laughs> yeah. And of course, no regrets whatsoever. I mean, uh, I joke about this in other settings where 
it took me 18 months to raise that fund that I did on my own. And you don't spend that amount of time raising fund for just $150 million fund. You're thinking about a series of funds you're gonna manage. And I was 28 at the time. And my plan was by the time I was 45, I'd have seven funds and be managing billions of dollars. And then um, life happens mm -hmm. and I'm so happy and thrilled I made that decision and just walked away from all of it. Of course, I didn't know at the time I was walking away from it completely, but what happened to me as a result and uh, you know, my priorities and value system, system changed, it shifted. So um, it was easy to make that decision. I love that you said that your priorities and value system shifted because it does and we should allow it to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Shouldn't, shouldn't hinder that. And, um, you know, I've talked about how it always sounds very glamorous to run a private equity fund, but um, you didn't have as much control of your life as that title suggests. Um, you know, your bosses were your limited partners, your investors, and, um, and also just the nature of the work. Um, after going through that with my son, I found that what really appealed to me was being in the service of others. Mm -hmm. And so after losing my mom as well, health and wellness being so important, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to do those businesses that brought that to people. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, that, uh, it, again, value shifts. <laughs> this podcast is also just another example of being in the service of others. Like, you know, we met, you had this amazing story and I'm like, I want to trumpet this to everyone I know. I so appreciate that. And your story is just as amazing. And again, you allowed that experience to shape you. And I think that that is what a lot of people push against. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, lean into that, whatever the change and the shift is happening, get curious about it and see what it's telling you. Um, exactly. And for me, similar to, to you, it's about making different decisions and honoring that we're in a different season and the values look different and that's okay. Exactly. Well, I can only imagine number, the number of people who don't heed their bodies when their bodies are telling them that you're undergoing stress and this is not sustainable. Yep. They power through it. And this is why you have, you know, people who have heart attacks at a very young age and uh, develop cancer at a very young age. It's, uh, yeah, the, uh, what I say is that the body is so wise and it's wiser than our brains. You know, our yes. brains have evolved and we have the prefrontal that's more mature than the, you know, the more immature part of our brain. But our body is, will tell us things all the time. And a lot of us walk around just ignoring it. And as I did at that time, I was ignoring the stomach pains. I was not wanting to look at why that was happening, the mind-body connection. Um, and that's all very real. And there's science to prove that now. Um, but yeah. Yeah, so great. So um, during this two-year period at the outset, mm -hmm. you developed your self-care practices. I did. I took it very seriously. And I've always had a love of yoga and meditation and mindfulness. And as my father was a Buddhist monk, you know, kind of, wow. was, yeah. So he passed right before he, right after he got ordained as a monk. Yeah. It was kind of like his dream in his 50s. So I, there was nothing, I mean, I was so happy for him that he achieved that. And so spirituality in that way, while I don't call myself a Buddhist, um, I am very spiritual and mindful. And so I really leaned into that practice of mindfulness and meditation. 
and that helped me to just you know work with the mind and the thoughts that were kind of the link between my stomach and all the ailments and what I was feeling and, and allowed myself to grieve as well. That's so great. Is there any particular school of meditation that you follow or any? Um, a lot of people ask me that. There's like the Korean version is a little different than the Japanese, a little different than the Chinese. And for me, it's whatever resonates with you. And I've never affiliated myself with a certain school of Buddhism. It's more about, you know, what do I need in that moment? So is it the Headspace app? Is it Insight Timer and all the, you know, 200 um, uh, teachers on there? So it's whatever resonates with you. I don't have a particular school. Nice. That's so great. I love that you have, sounds like tried several other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, tell us about, um, so when, what, what began to shift for you? Um, I mean, I imagine your health improved significantly. Um, what was then the trigger or the signal that, okay, I'm ready to go back. So I had two years off and in that time I was able to travel some and, you know, really had my first child. Tyler was born. (laughs) Congrats. Because of my hiatus. (laughs) (laughs) So it also allowed me to really look at, you know, my desires of becoming a mom and, and um, addressing all the fears associated with that and parenthood and all the yeah. what ifs and embrace that and have my first child. And then the question became, well, what, how do I make this work? I have a, you know, a child. Do I want to be a stay at home mom? Do I want to go back to work? What does it look like? What are the options for me? And at that time, it was pretty limited. I have to tell you, Asim. It was more about, you know, okay, go back full time, put your kid in daycare, or you stay home. And there's very few in between, very yeah. few grades. Uh-huh. And uh, so after being home with them for close to a year, I said, you know, I am so passionate about what I do. I really want to go back into the field and practice and go back to a company. So that's when I was actively looking for, okay, what have I had in my past as an experience? What do I want that's different and will challenge me in a different way, but also allowed me to be the the new mother that I am, that I was at that time. So there are a number of factors for me. um, And I I know a lot of women that are new to motherhood think about all of these things. You know, how can I, how can I make all of this work? So um, that's where I landed at Warner Brothers, and I hadn't had entertainment experience before, and so that was very interesting to me, and working, again, with specifically with different client groups and managing all of the OD soup to nuts, um, coaching, uh, leadership development, facilitation, all of that work, um, while trying to maintain some sort of like, okay, I'm going to go home at a reasonable time. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I have to say the the two populations uh, that you've interacted with, um, sort of the, the creative types and the uh, the technical types, um, they can be very similar traits <laughs> in terms of <laughs> behaviors, which is a whole other conversation, but oh, I wow. would love to have that with you because I've been in positions where I've had to manage both. And it's so fascinating to me um, especially when it comes to trying to articulate what really matters to them. Um, oftentimes it's like the behavior doesn't match with what they're saying. Yeah. 
-hmm. You have to really read the behavior and then challenge them. And oftentimes they don't know how to react to that. Mm -hmm. um, so you really have to kind of massage them in a very gentle way to get to the heart of like, I think this is actually what's really important to you and not what you've been saying. Yeah. So it's very fascinating. I, and you captured it so beautifully. It's like, you know, helping them uncover that, the massaging. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd love to hear more about your experience there and <laughs> other observations. But again, that could be another whole podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or a whole series. Yeah. Um, for sure. Um, well, so, and uh, your daughter Emma is two years younger than Tyler. So, yeah. Shortly after you joined Warner Brothers, you had her. I want to say probably six months in is when I became pregnant again and they're like wow <laughs> um yeah I I wanted my kids to be closer in age and when you're in your mid-30s as I was at that time you just don't know fertility wise what can happen so I didn't want to wait and lucky enough to have her, them close together in age so yeah I started a new job as a new mom also while being pregnant you know I what can I say? Like, I had to throw all the things at myself. <laughs> you really did. Became a master juggler. That's so fascinating. <laughs> you juggle pretty well. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was um, a period in which I was getting to know new teammates and trying to prove myself to clients and show my worth and value. And while also you know, adjusting to this home life and preparing for another child to be added to the mix. So it was an interesting time. Yeah, no, for sure. And, um, you know, I love how in your book, you, you sort of, you're very authentic and raw about how um, people would often comment like, oh my God, you're just, you've mastered this so well. And you were honest and saying it takes a lot of work and sometimes it doesn't all come together well. Yeah, I mean, I think that majority of my time in corporate life, I had, I was lucky enough to be in positions of leadership and also doing work and made a lot of peer friends and questions they would ask me is like, how are you doing that? How do you make it work? Well, it takes a lot of behind the scenes of planning and thinking ahead and kind of trying to think of through situations that even haven't come up yet. And a lot of people and players, right? I have... Uh, I had my mom with me at the time who was the key caretaker of my kid. And I also had a nanny before my mom. So, you know, I'm very fortunate to have the help and be able to have the help. So that I think is number one is how can we have the support in our lives to make all this work? No, no, absolutely. Well, and um, after how many years did you have Noah? Ah, so Emma was two when we decided to have a third yeah. child because two is not enough. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, that's a pivotal shift because then you're outnumbered. Yeah. Although you, you, <laughs> it's parents. I mean, you had your mom, but still, it's not the same. So. It's not the same, but it's same. I think you know enough of my story to know like, I like challenges. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And I, I have mad respect for that. Ah, thank you. Uh, yeah, so it was one of those things, like, if it happened, again, now I'm in my late 30s, so if it happens, great. If it doesn't, that's all great as well. And lucky enough to have, you know, had uh, Noah, and he is now, gosh, he's now six years old. That's great. Wonderful. Yeah. 
Well, the amazing thing is once you have them, you can imagine life without them. And so it just becomes this matter of making it all work. Yeah, that that is actually true in terms of like, do I have enough love, energy? You just, you do and then and it just happens. You yeah. have to adjust and you That's find right. ways. No, absolutely, yeah. Um, when did you first begin thinking that, okay, this Warner Brothers job is great, but I'm feeling this pull of my own business, consulting. I just, I want that shift. When did that start to happen for you? That happened at my first stint at Warner Brothers back in 2010, around 2010, 2011, okay. where I was there for about three years. And I felt like, you know, I, and by this time, you know, I had two kids already. So yeah. really the question became, how can I do what I love doing and be in service of others while still having a life that allows me to be present more with my kids? And by this time, you know, they're walking and they're in preschool and they're doing all these things that the company allowed me to be a part of, you know, I had to take the risk and first explore there, right? I didn't want to leave Warner Brothers. Could they give me a, a you know, four day work week? Could I go to the mommy and me, you know, times with Tyler and Emma? What did this look like? And in experimenting and doing all that with Warner Brothers, as flexible as they could have been then, right? We weren't all working at home like we do now, right. which is a whole different story. Yes. Um, uh, we've been thrust into something it's a whole yeah the new normal is so vastly different than where we were before right now i just i want to go to work exactly yeah <laughs> please i'd like to get out right it's a different story but back then it was really hard to carve that time out and not a lot of women were doing that there was a lot of pressure a lot of unconscious unconscious things right so whatever you know at that time all of those factors really made me want to take that leap in terms of, okay, if I'm my own boss and maybe I can then control my time um, in the way that I wanted to. And time is everything, right? If you don't have that. Um, so I wanted to be able to do that and that um, allowed me to make that jump. I took the risk of making the jump of starting my own firm at that time around 2013, 2014, yeah. Great. Well, kudos on doing that. That uh, also must have given you a little bit of uh, cognitive dissonance. Uh, <laughs> I'm making a face because honestly, it was for me. And I think for you, I would love to hear because you're an entrepreneur as well. And you've done a lot of things in, in your life in terms of taking risks that other people would be like, wow, that's scary. And for me, making that jump was super scary because I want, I want the traditional path is so safe. Yeah. And there are a lot of certainties about it. And to make that jump to, I didn't have a business plan. I made the leap thinking, okay, it'll just work out for me. Obviously I did the work once I left and, you know, built the, the name and the brand and all of that stuff and the services. And that, by the way, was the biggest learning I've had in being an entrepreneur about the brand and all of that and how you price yourself. Now, that aside, it was super scary. And this is what I tell people to do in the book is that when it's that scary, look at it, work with it. What is it telling you? Exactly. Well, and I, I love that aspect of your book because I've often said the same thing. The thing that you're afraid of the most is precisely the direction you need to move towards. Yes, 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 yes. We should make stickers about that. <laughs> We totally should. Oh my God. We could have our like hashtag factory. Yes. All these different sayings. Um, I will say you give me a lot of credit, but that was a learned um, 
stance and orientation towards life. Had I not been thrown out of the airplane with my son's issue, I'm not sure I'd have done all that I have. Um, truth be told, because it was just, it was, it was the gold, we call it the golden handcuffs. It was, was way too comfortable. I could have just kept coasting doing that, but then I wouldn't have had this voyage of discovery and doing all these other things, which have been absolutely amazing. And I couldn't imagine life without them. So what I hear you say is that because you allowed that experience to change you, you have then had these amazing experiences that you wouldn't have had. Similar to me in way back when my dad passed, it shifted me. It allowed me to look at things differently, reprioritize what's most important to me. That has then led me to the paths that I took and allowed the jumps to be easier and more purposeful. Exactly. Yeah. We get better at it the more we do it. Yes, you get better at it. Yes, 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 yes. It becomes a lot easier. It does. And that's what I want people to know is that it's a muscle just like anything else. The first one is big, scary, palpable, like you want to, you know, your heart is racing, all of that, whatever it is, physically, it gets easier. Um, We are going to talk about your book. I just do want to ask this question. Um, With your coaching practice, your consulting business, who is an ideal client for you? My ideal client is that high-performing woman that wants to get unstuck, whether in the workplace or in their life or both. And I, my sweet spot is in working with people, women of that nature, because I was and I am that. I've led teams. I'm highly ambitious, just not in the traditional way. Um, so I understand the challenges there. And I also work with what I call emerging leaders. So those people in companies that are at the director, the um, VP levels, because guess what? I was there as well. And I understand the unique sandwich nature of being a leader um, with a lot of influence, but maybe not a lot of resources. So to be able to help those leaders get to that next big thing or whatever that next is for them is where I thrive. Oh, that's fantastic. So when did the idea for Mommy Tracked, the book, first come to you? When did you say, I'm going to do this? So Mommy Tracked came about in my conversation at my second stint at Warner Brothers. So after I had Noah, I went back to Warner. They called me back and asked me to lead the, uh, the organization development team. So I happily took that, um, that role because I wanted to experience being a leader in a different way. Mm-hmm. And in having one-on-one conversations with my team, I, was, I noticed that with this particular person in person, a particular person, we always talked about kind of what our side passions were. What is, you know, what lights you up? What's a side passion? And I was, she mirrored back for me that what I always gravitate to is how to make this mommy thing work. Yeah. What's it feel like to be a mom working with three kids in corporate world and how, what the shifts are and what the important decisions are, all of these things. And she's like, you know, that's what you should write a book about. And I said, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, yeah, it took that it. moment of her saying, mirroring back, saying, hey, that's your lived experience. Yeah. That could benefit others. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are so many... Um, books out there about people's experiences and the shifts they've made i really do believe and i'm not just saying that because i'm talking to you now that your book really stands out because it's not just about life journey 
it's about life experiences through the lens of someone trained in how to assess, analyze, and critique human behavior and motivation professionally. Yeah. So you you speak in this with this authority and you know your references and, and so forth it just is so robust and it's so um it comes from a great place but you haven't descended into this language that is too technical and out of reach it still has this very approachable language as if you're having coffee or wine with a friend and they're telling you about this is what happened so I really commend you. It's so challenging to do. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I would agree with you. I think anybody that goes through coaching with me or knows me as you're getting to know me as well is that that's, I, I live integrated with, you know, who I am and how I want to be in the world. And that is relatable. And yes, I have the training and I have the pedigree and I have the theories, but if people don't meet you and they can't meet you halfway, then it doesn't really serve anyone. That's right. Um, and so most people, I'll tell you this, they find it surprising that I have a PhD because I don't talk <laughs> technical <laughs> a lot. <laughs> but that also has to do with the clients I serve. So yeah. entertainment and media and production and all the, the people that I work with currently and startups, it's too much and they're not ready for it. And so... I meet them where they're at. Well, it, it, and I, I understand what you're saying about people not are wondering, yeah, are being surprised maybe that you have a PhD. But I think the the biggest challenge is um, it's not in explaining one's profession to your peers, your professional peers. It's explaining it to someone who doesn't have any orientation, and this is what you've really mastered. That is wisdom. That's that's goes beyond knowledge. It's like mastery and wisdom, and that's really hard to do. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I really wanted it to be a book where people are like, "Yes, I see pieces of me here," and I do want to take the time to reflect and do the work to have uh, something be different because yeah. so many of us walk around wanting things to be different, but they never act on it. Yeah. So if it's like having wine with me, which I, I mean, that is like awesome because I want people to feel that I am an approachable person that will help them along the way. And that's typically how I coach as well. Yes, well, it's brilliant. Well, and I got a lot out of it. Um, I mean, initially I was reading it for the sake of our interview. And as I got into it, I'm like, I'm really doing this in service of my daughter so that I can help her and keep her. But then the more vignettes you had in there, the more I was like, oh my God, I've been there. Oh yeah, you saw yourself there saying, this is not just for women, I'm telling you. No, it's really not. It's not at all. It is so, um, again, just tangible, approachable. Um, a few themes I just want to hit to, to be sure. Um, you did use the word integrated uh, in our conversation just now, and that is a big part of your book. I'd love for you to share for the audience um, how you define that. Absolutely. So integration is about taking uh, your values and identifying what those are and mixing that with the phase of life that you're in and then finding out, okay, how do I take those things and integrate that into my life? And it's getting rid of the word balance because that is absolutely unachievable. It's my fundamental belief that you're going to keep doing this thing and trying to chase something that is not aligned to your values that will deplete you 
and keep you chasing something that is elusive, like the goalpost keeps moving on this balance thing. And it's really about, okay, you know, in this phase of my life, I absolutely value family time. And to me, that looks like we have to have dinner. So how do I integrate that into my life um, and lead with that, those things that matter to me most? Yeah. Oh, that's so well said. That's perfect. Um, the title of your book, the term mommy track or mommy tracked. Um, this is about how, uh, when a woman, a professional woman decides to start a family and then it's, it's a perception that she's not going to take her career as seriously because she has to make time. Um, would you say, so he, that is that self-inflicted or is that the corporate world putting that assessment on? Great question. I think it's a bit of both. I think that it would be a disservice to say, oh, it's of course the corporation and of, or of course it's the person. I think it's, there's an interplay there yeah. and you can't um, dismiss that. So yes, are there women that decide to kind of lean out a little bit once they start a family? Yes. Um, and so that kind of perpetuates a cycle on the company also kind of plays to that too. Uh, and what I wanted to do is really just flip it on its head and say, listen, like we, it doesn't have to be that or black and white or linear or dichotomy. Um, it could look completely different. Yeah. Oh, so well said. Um, many of the other themes that uh, I've sort of taken notes on from reading your book that I'm going to refer back to in my daily life, um, we've touched upon in our conversation, you know, the, the ability to, um, you know, giving ourselves permission to be curious and uh, the dangers of socializing our decisions. Yes. Oh my goodness. I could have a whole nother podcast on this one. <laughs> perpetual thing that women do whether they know it or not is to say what do you think it's giving away our power when we really need to slow down and tune into what our gut whatever you want to call it our inner voice is telling us we know what we want to do we know what we want our life to look like but then we'll say to a friend I don't know what do you think and one of the quotes that I put in my book is, you know, um, asking somebody else is what you do when you already know what you want to do, right? It's like asking for permission. Right. So there is scary to own our decisions. It's scary to be like, this is what I want to do and take the risks to, to get there. And so, of course, we just kind of go, what do you think? And try to get everyone's support and rally around it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's so fascinating. Um, an interesting aside, um, from a relationship perspective, I learned that as a male, when I'm being asked that, I'm actually not being asked to solve a problem. <laughs> I'm being asked to just hear her out, um, support her decision if I think it makes sense, and then raise other possibilities or things that I've thought of that maybe she has as well. And just just be that just but basically my job is to listen yeah <laughs> nuts and bolts just listen and i think it's funny because you're probably one of many males that have to learn that in a oh, i was definitely learned oh my god <laughs> because you guys want to solve things <laughs> i'll slay the dragon for you don't worry not what i'm asking oh okay <laughs> and you know good for the woman that pushes back and says, I actually just need you to listen to me. 
right? Because if we don't have that knowing, we'll just go, okay, thanks for telling me, and then just move on. Yeah. And it is in those instances where we have to be very intentional, as especially as women, because we we are kind of what I call default is to ask what others think yeah. first before we tune into our own knowing. Well, it was a, a series of uh, disastrous uh, scenarios that finally had me be like, wait a minute, what am I doing wrong here? So I went and sought the knowledge. Um, I wish I had been dating people who had been like, listen, this is what is actually happening here. And then when I adopted it, life was about a lot smoother. Oh, uh, I bet, I bet. <laughs> Um, I know we're we're coming up against time here. I just wanted to to share this one aspect uh, or just talk about it because I think it 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 really is reflected so well in your book. And a short anecdote: um, my daughter has been inspired in terms of what I've been doing. So she's got her own podcast that she started. It's called Feminine Focus, and she interviews her peers and she talks about and this is a very deliberate term: mental wellness, uh -huh. um, especially like the impact of the pandemic, how that's changed, what gives them anxiety, what gives them joy, how are they able to experience joy. And we really deliberated on this term a lot because um, mental health always feels like there's something to be diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Whereas mental wellness is like physical fitness. And so, so many of the themes in your book around discussion about burnout or discussion like navigating all those shoulds, mm -hmm. um, this is really a mental wellness theme. It's, you know, yes. it's not necessarily medication we need to be taking, but we're not approaching our lives in the best possible ways to uh, affect the best possible outcomes. So um, this conversation really needs to be a part of uh, what we're talking about. And I just, I give you huge kudos and props for, for emphasizing that and bringing that up. Thank you. And I love that term mental wellness, because you're right. It, it is about, you know, getting rid of the shoulds and being aligned to what grounds you. And mental wellness is such a, a beautiful way to capture that. So I love that your daughter's doing that. Good for yeah. her. She, uh, she impresses me so much. Guys, oh, <laughs> yes, we'll make that happen. Absolutely. Um, so hey, this has been such an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. It's been extraordinary. Thank you for having me. This is the hour and it has flown by and I feel like we can talk so much more on so many more things. So thank you for, for having me, truly. It's Absolutely. been an honor. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive and Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.